1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As we begin to study these precious words I want us to note again that our passage begins with one of those special connecting words. In this case, the word is finally. And that word finally serves much in the same way as the word likewise in those two previous portions. Portions having to do with the righteous responses that men and women are to have towards authority. And also the behaviors that husbands and wives are to have towards one another. All of that in verses 1 through 7. But also back over in chapter 2. But all of these words are connected and I want to remind us of that because too often we tend to separate out certain of these scriptures for our own purposes because they suit our designs when they instead should be taken along with other scriptures as part of a more broad concept. And for that reason, we need to recall the admonishment from Isaiah where he tells us to always be laying precept upon precept, line upon line. If it only says it one time in scripture or even two times or even more, We have to be careful that we use it rightly, precept upon precept. Because often the Lord may be talking about a whole different matter when He is using the same words. But it's in a different context. And so I want us to always lay precept upon precept and line upon line. So then as we examine these words here today, we can then know that this word finally is carefully pointing us back and requiring us to include as part of our consideration of all of these instructions that we need to understand that it also includes how we are to respond to all of those authorities that we have been talking about that uh, are placed over us in one venue or another. Our employers, our government, and others. And even especially extending on into our home and our family when it speaks of the husband being the head of the wife, but also the husband honoring and being considerate of and respecting his wife. There in those first words, I want to remind us that in chapters 2 and chapters 3, God gave us resolute exhortations and warnings saying that aside from those few and rare exceptional times and circumstances, that our usual, our common, our only acceptable manner of conduct and behavior towards authority is to be humble obedience. Humble obedience. I dealt with that 
at one point in my work there at French camp, there in the ministry, was I in humble obedience? I quite often was, but it was forced humility because the boss made me do it. Is that the kind of humility and obedience that the Lord wants us to have according to these instructions? No. He wants me to give as a free will offering my humble obedience. Where does that extend to, humble obedience? It extends even to the designs of my own mind. I had to come to a conclusion that I was not going to force my intentions upon the manner in which French Camp Academy was being managed and that I would not try to run that ministry from my desk or from the president's desk or from the quietness of my own mind. That's where it all starts. They are deep within our thought processes. James chapter 1 says that's where sinful thoughts, all forms of sin, seem to originate back there in those thought processes. They begin there. And so that's where I had to start my humble obedience. That's where you have to start your humble obedience. It has to be there in the hidden recesses of your own thought processes. That we quit cursing our neighbor or our president or our boss from the secret places of our own mind. Humble obedience goes to the very depths of who we are. Why is that so? Because he also says in these scriptures that we've covered in the past two or three weeks that beyond our responses to those earthborn authorities, our bosses, our government, we're admonished that though most of our daily interactions really are with people, that it truly is the Lord Christ whom we're ultimately serving and to whom we are ultimately accountable. Yes, they are the faces that we look at, our president or our employer, but our accountability is to Christ because it is the Lord Christ whom we serve. That is such an important concept for us to understand and to accept because with so many of the attitudes and the behaviors and responses that we display as we go throughout our day, there's often no immediate or direct consequence. The rolling of the eyes when someone says something to you, especially your boss, if he doesn't see you roll your eyes at him, and especially the President of the United States doesn't see you rolling your eyes at him when you see him on some television news program. So there's no immediate or direct consequence for those behaviors. But then, all of that truly will catch up to us. All of those attitudes and behaviors, they start to add up and have impact beginning within our own souls. And then they begin to show out to those that are around us. All that griping and complaining that we do as we sit across the break room table at work. Or as we tell everybody how wrong our government is and how right we are in our thinking. But especially when it's up close within our families, within our church groups, within our workplaces. All of those attitudes and behaviors start to add up. And they surely will 
have consequences at some point. Now, most of that is most easily seen within the families. And I want to go back and remind us husbands or potential husbands, our wives were given a gift of special intuition. Women have intuition that we men don't have. And they know about our attitude and what our attitude is displaying. And let me assure you, that adds up. And that's why we have so many broken families. But it also adds up within our workplaces, within our other group venues, in our churches, in our other neighborhood type of relationships. People keep those offenses that we don't even know that we are committing. But they know. And they keep them and ponder them within their hearts and their minds. But they will rise to the surface at some point. Now, may I say to you that that is also, that concept is also true for good responses and godly behaviors. And that's what this portion here is encouraging us about as it begins this portion of Scripture. Later on, in the verses 9 through 12, we're going to see some negative things. But the first part of this, verse 8, has to do with the other side of those attitudes, those responses that we'll have. Loving kindness, sympathy, empathy. They can bring pleasant days and warm relationships within a family, within a church, within a workplace, within your community, wherever you are. So both of those are going to be true. And again, that's the context of these words here in verse 8. Listen to these. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Folks, those are some of the most necessary relational attributes that any group of people would ever need in order to sustain them as friends and allies. Again, whether it be in a family or in a workplace or in your church or in a community environment, it's unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderness, humility. Those can bind that group together. Again, whether it be just the two of a husband and wife or whether it be a broader group as a church or your workplace environment. As I was looking through that list there in verse 8, it occurred to me to ask, are those words in any special order? Are they to be taken chronologically? One building upon the next. And I thought, yes, in one sense they are in a necessary order with unity needing to come first because unity is so foundational to every relationship. Because the word relationship implies more than one person. It's two within a marriage. It's many within a group within the church, within your workplace, within your community. But then in another sense, in another sense, all of these words here are absolutely necessary and they all need to be done all at the same time. So it's not as if you can start with one and work towards the others. We'll study about that in Second Peter. 
where you add to your virtues. Here I believe all of these are being said that they need to be all at one time. And so they're not then one before another. Now yes, some people within a group will need to work harder at one of these than the other and so they'll lag behind on certain of these. But all of these are required of every person who's in a relationship with another person. And again, I want to keep saying this, whether it be between a husband and a wife, with another family member, with fellow church members, with your employer, with you as an employer, but with other employees in your community involvements. These elements here are all absolutely essential to the life and health of good relationships. But maybe begin with this first one, unity. Let me emphasize, there are few dynamics and influences that are more foundational to the success of a group than that of unity. Our son Stephen has a project that his math club is working on and it is a robot. And he has a group of students involved in that. The success of that whole project will depend first upon the unity of that group. No one is smart enough to make that project work on their own. They all need each other. That's demonstrated to us here in this body of Christ. Every part of the body of Christ needs the other parts of the body of Christ. Our own body needs every part that we have. That group that he's working with of teenagers, they need each other in unity. Unity is just foundational to the success of that project. When I first started thinking about this word unity, being such a visual thinker, I thought of six people, each with their leg tied to one of the legs of the other six people. But all six of them want to go different directions. That's the way it is without unity. Unity of purpose. Unity of desire. And what takes place? It's chaos. It's anger. It's frustration. All of those things will rule that group. Unity is a simple word with a simple definition. It's a state of being one. Joined or united together as a whole. Indivisible. The unity that the Apostle Peter is exhorting these believers to have with one another. Yes, it's a primarily a spiritual unity. It's a spiritual context because it's within this congregation that he's writing this letter to. But as with every circumstance, it gets worked out. The concepts like this of unity, it gets all worked out within the matters of daily life within that group. The spiritual responses to those very practical matters that are taking place. And if there's no unity, then even the most mundane of matters becomes an undercurrent of discord and lack of unity. Now most likely this group that the Apostle Peter was writing this letter to and then also will write the second letter to, they were probably related in many ways. They had these interlocking relationships. Some were most likely family members. Others were co-workers. Others were fellow community members. The intent of these words here was to exhort all of those folks 
to incorporate their spiritual discernment and their behavior, their spiritual behavior into every aspect of their ordinary daily existence, whether it be with them as church members or in their individual families or in their workplaces or their community. They were to live and to move and have their being as one. One thought, one in purpose, one in matters of behavior. That's not an easy thing because most all communities really are diverse. Different personalities, different desires, differing interests, differing goals in life. So what then would be that that would be needed for those diverse members of that community to become one with one another? It's humility. Humility, the dying to self. What's going to promote the success of Stephen's project within that group? It will be as the members die to their own self-interest and become one with their group and the purpose of the group. Humility is the only thing that can bring that about. Let me read about that in Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, we read, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. These words bring to my mind all the many years of my working. Most of them, most of my years of working were in some position of management, both in my first years as a banker, but also then afterwards in the ministry there at French Camp. And these two experiences, back with the bank and then there at French Camp, they were vastly different, especially as it regards this matter of relationship being of a spiritual nature. Within the banks where I was employed, and in those earlier years I was not a believer, spiritual considerations were seldom ever mentioned. But it was there also that I became a Christian in those years. But listen, the spiritual handling of banking matters, and especially the handling of the relationships within the workaday life, while it was never mentioned, not even in our leadership training, not in our seminars on management, spiritual handling, the way that the Lord recommends to us in these scriptures, are still foundational. Still foundational, though they weren't spoken of. And I came to find out after I came to know the Lord that I was not exempt from handling those secular employment matters in a very spiritual way. Those people who sit in church every Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and they go to work in the factories around here or any of the other employments, they are not exempt from handling those secular employment matters in a spiritual manner. I do recall in those years as I came to know the Lord and started to grow in Him, I can recall tremendous changes that took place within my own personality 
I really did begin to think differently. I began to care more about others and want better for them. My own moral value system changed. I wanted others to succeed. I wanted my bank to succeed in its business. It was no longer just me and my desires. I started to actually consider the needs of others. I didn't know it then, but thinking back on those days, I can see that it was the workings of Philippians 2.12 that were taking place within my soul as I worked throughout those days of secular employment. Working out my salvation with fear and trembling, for it was His Holy Spirit working within me to live and to do according to His good pleasure. That was actually taking place. I didn't know it at the time, but it was taking place. Unity of mind. Sympathy. Brotherly love. A tender heart and a humble mind. Unity is absolutely essential to the good health of any relationship and to actually put into position that which would bring about these other factors of sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. One of the other things before I close, I found that I began to value the happiness of those around me as being very important. Not just the matter of getting so many items of work done within a day. I came to value the happiness of those fellow staff members. Again, this was even back within my days when I was working at the bank. I really wanted not only my family to be happy, which was coming first there in those growing years as a believer, but that extended on out to those that I worked with. I wanted my co-workers, especially those that I had responsibility for as a manager. I wanted them to actually enjoy their daily work. Now that's a tall order. Again, there's a diversity in people's personality. But I still felt that it was right that their happiness would be a goal that I would work for. And for the most part it worked out fairly well. Far better than it would have had I not given that effort. Relationships require an investment of love and an investment of time. Both of those are giving things. Each of these involvements here, the unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, they require an investment of ourself, a giving on the part of ourselves to make that possible. Now I hope next week to continue with this But let me just close by asking you, is this working out in your daily Christian life? Are you being willing to die to self, to endure suffering that others might gain? And that be whether or not you're talking about your relationship with the ones that are closest to you in the family or in your work environment. How committed, how fervent are you in your desire for unity? for oneness of spirit. I'll close with these words again from Philippians 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.